the, the organization's been around, created in 1932, you know, uh, with, with the reintroduction of the Purple Heart as an official military award for combat injuries. Of course, the Purple Heart itself predates that and goes back to 1782, you know, with the cre creation of the Badge of Military Merit by George Washington. So that's, you know, that's where our history goes all the way back to. And uh, of course, then at the time, that was an award that was, it was a badge um, that was, was given to, there's, there's three cases that they can verify that were, that was awarded. And so obviously it would have been the equivalent of the Medal of Honor uh, today. Um, through the years, it did not, it wasn't used, but it never left the Army inventory until, you know, the 1920s, they started talking about, well, how do we recognize, you know, during World War I, they would get wound chevrons, and it's like an upside down um, chevron that showed that they were wounded, and so General MacArthur got involved in this a little bit later, and they came up and they said, well, let's let's dust off this uh, badge of military merit. And because it's a Purple Heart, let's call it the Purple Heart. And we'll put George Washington's picture on it. And, um, you know, we'll create a medal that military members, originally Army, only Army, can receive for combat injuries. And then after World War II, I think 1942, the Marine Corps adopted it and then eventually the Navy and then, you know, obviously the Army Air Corps had it because they were part of the Army. Uh, but then all of the branches adopted it, you know, as World War II continued to, to grind on. So that's, that's the history uh, part of it. If you want to know nuts and bolts, what it's like to be a Purple Heart recipient, you know, you have two generations right here. You have Larry, who was in the 173rd Airborne in Vietnam, was wounded in Vietnam. You have myself, you know, ironically, my father was in the 173rd, not the same unit, but the, I mean, the same unit, not at the same time. And then I was wounded in Iraq. So, you know, you see the different generations here, but ultimately we were wounded essentially by the same weapon systems that are still used today. Um, so there's, there's a lot of uh, opportunities for us to, uh, you know, come together, tell our stories, and really develop a level of camaraderie. Many, many times I, I look at myself and I say, why am I here? Uh, not because of the nature of my wounds, but the fact that uh, I was just in the wrong place and lucky enough to only get wounded in the arm and the back of the neck. But the one, as the commander said, I was with the 173rd Airborne Brigade, Delta Company, uh, forward observer, 1970. I'd gotten country uh, in October and got hit on the 12th of December, 1970. Uh, we were on a night combat assault to go rescue the uh, recon platoon rangers that had been out and set up an ambush, and they got into more than they bargained for. So they set up the, a call to us, and we sent out the ready reaction force and as the forward observer, I did not have a recon sergeant. He'd been uh, wounded about three weeks earlier. So I had a young PFC as a radio operator who had only been in country about uh, a little over three weeks himself. So instead of taking both of those out, uh, the recon sergeant who 
doesn't exist at this point in time. My RTO is too new. I left him to come out with the rest of the company if need be. So I deployed with the Red Reaction Force, and as I was getting off the helicopter, I looked around and I saw where I was planning on stepping was a machine gunner had already taken up the position. So I just kind of did a left pivot with my foot and tried to move out of the way so I wouldn't be sitting on top of him. And my foot was in a hole and I lost my footing. And I fell on a grenade. Uh, to this day, we don't know whether or not it was a, a TICOM or an American grenade where they forgot to pull the safety pin or whatever like some people do. But anyhow, I ended up getting shrapnel in uh, two places on my left arm and one on each side of my neck. The machine gunner got wounded because he caught a piece of the, the shrapnel. And the guy who was getting off the helicopter behind me got a piece of shrapnel on his leg. So that's how I got my Purple Heart. And at the time, it was uh, now it's kind of funny, then it wasn't. But as I look around, there's yellow smoke going everywhere. And I wanted to know what the hell was going on. And that uh, grenade I laid on, it actually uh, caused two smoke grenades that I had on my rucksack to go off. So we had yellow smoke going everywhere. And I couldn't uh, raise my left arm. The medic came over and said, let me, let me help, let me help. I said, what are you bothering me for? And I looked down and that said he was working on my left arm and trying to figure out, okay, what had happened. So they put me back on the uh, helicopter and said, okay, just go with them. And as I was reaching down to leave, my platoon sergeant was trying to hand my rucksack up. And the last thing I remember for a little while was, Lieutenant, take this damn rucksack, it's yours. And then we, uh, we took off to go back to the base. Uh, we had to auto-rotate into the LZ English. We took about uh, 27 rounds of 37-millimeter uh, machine gun fire from the ground and ended up losing the helicopter and auto-rotated. Luckily, we were close enough that the pilot could auto-rotate into LZ English. So that's, that's my story, and I could go on for what happened after that. But that's, that's how I got my Purple Heart. So I want to ask, uh, with how did you get involved with the military order of Purple Heart? Like a lot of guys, uh, particularly in today's age, you know, when I got back to the States after uh, uh, Vietnam, we rotated back as an entire unit. We went straight to uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky with the 101st Airborne. We were still the 173rd at the time, but we converted from the separate brigade to the third brigade of the 101st. And so I'm still working hard with the uh, military. I spent another at that time, I guess 26 years, I 20 years, 28 years total service, active duty. And I didn't even know about the Purple Heart. And that's the problem that we have today, that we're not well known, we're a small organization. We have no mechanism that says, uh, that allows the Department of Army or the Department of Defense to tell transitioning soldiers and airmen and uh, service members that these service office Service organizations like the American Legion, the DAV, the Purple Heart. There's nothing that actually tells these guys on a transitioning basis that these organizations are out there for them. So I didn't hear about it. Had no reason to hear about it. Wasn't looking for it. Uh, 
I joined the VFW not because I knew anything about them, but because <laughs> my uh, parents lived in a small town that has a, a, legion, a VFW uh, restaurant and bar, and they could join as my parents. I was never around, but I, get, I joined the VFW for that sole reason, so they could get access to that restaurant and bar. Uh, had nothing to do with any kind of veterans organization other than knowing about them while I stayed on active duty. My focus was 100% on active duty. And I did that until I retired in 1996. And then a few years later, I started hearing a little bit about Military Order for Heart, but nothing significant from any one person. In 2014, uh, a friend of mine here in Cordobella said, why don't we have an or a veterans organization in our housing area, Cordobella? So I created one with his help. And in that process, got to know several other Purple Heart recipients in the local area and found out that there was a chapter close to me. It's only about uh, 20 miles away. So I joined the Military Order of the Purple Heart in 2014, went to a couple meetings, <clears throat> Excuse me. Enjoying the camaraderie, what we were all about, which is trying to make friends and talk about each other and support our community. And uh, without doing that, without nothing but just telling war stories, that was not our mission in life, was to sit around telling war stories. But that camaraderie helps a lot of veterans overcome some of the challenges that they carry with them, uh, challenges from their combat experience. Um, I'm extremely lucky. I didn't lose any body parts. I lost a little blood. Uh, although James will tell you that he thinks I have a lot of PTSD and do some dumb stuff. Uh, personally, compared to some of the guys I know that do have some uh, PTSD problems, I don't have any problems, period. Uh, I'm extremely lucky and very, very happy that I am who I am. And uh, then in 2014, after I joined, I'd been there about six months. And uh, my friend said, well, let's go to the department convention. And uh, you'll see how the department, the state level works. So I said, okay, let's go. I went, and uh, I'm the kind of guy that's definitely not bashful. If I hear something <laughs> I don't understand or I don't like, I'll stand up and ask people about it. And I said, well, why are we doing this? What are we doing here? Why aren't we doing this kind of stuff? The next thing I know, I was nominated to be the department adjutant, which is <clears throat> kind of like a uh, secretary for the commander and uh, keeps track of all the paperwork, uh, talks to all the members, keeps them on track. And I ended up being that as department adjutant for almost, still am, for, since 2014 to now. And I really, really like working with all kinds of veterans, uh, all across the service, across the different uh, Veteran Service Organizations uh, became at the same year I joined the American Legion and ended up being a uh, commander for my local post and the first vice commander for the district. Uh, I just turned over both of those this year to somebody else. It's their turn. Now, when I was, I just became the department commander for Arizona in uh, April, and James got elected to be the national commander in July. And he reached out and asked me to be his adjutant. So in August, I became the national adjutant, and I've been there ever since. Uh, I'm having a great time. Uh, he works me extremely hard and way too much for my capabilities. But uh, we've got a good organization. 
we have our challenges as any organization does. One of the biggest challenges is still the same thing it was for me back when I got back from Vietnam is making the fact that our organization exists and that we are there to help the combat wounded veterans first, but primarily any and all veterans, whether they were combat wounded or not. The fact that they are a veteran, we as Purple Heart organization are here to help. We don't have the funding that we used to have and we don't have quite the capabilities that we used to have in terms of filling out applications for uh, service-connected disabilities, but that doesn't stop us from helping veterans in their time of need or with paperwork. Uh, we, can, we can still help them, we just don't have the certification that we used to have. And because of all of that, that whole climate of things that have gotten around me since 2014, that's why I'm very proud to be a Military Order of the Purple Heart recipient and a member of this organization. Thank you for sharing that. I've James. Got, I got some stories. I got some other stories that could go along with it, but I don't think it's appropriate for this interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, the big thing you said with the camaraderie is, you know, uh, how important is it when you, you know, you leave the service and you have, you know, a support system. I personally, I think it's uh, very critical. Uh, I mean, in my case, you know, by the time I left the service, uh, my support system became an, an immediate bond with the people I was working with. Uh, I was getting out of the service. I was a full colonel, uh, owned the base, and part of our base operations was a transition service and resume writing and helping them write the resumes and things like that. So when it came my turn, I went through that same process and said, okay, help me write my resume, critique my stuff, so I can see what the staff was actually putting out to the troops as they transitioned. And I got my resume together and I sent it to my little brother in California. I said, okay, critique this. And he sent it back and he says, change A to the, the to and, put a comma here, and oh, by the way, you got an interview whenever you want to get here. So I got, got out, got to the company, uh, set up my interview, went in, and I talked to six different people. All of them were military in one shape or another, uh, retired, reserve. The owner of the company was a Russian artilleryman in his service. He owned the company, and I was artillery. So uh, we had a great time. I only had one person ask me about my uh, logistics skills or my project management skills. The rest of the time we talked about military. <laughs> and I went to work for them and I worked for them for 17 years. And then finally they started making me travel more often and farther out. And so I said, nope, it's time to go do something different. When I was in the Army, my wife and I, uh, I was in the 28 years. Kay and I were married for 24 of those 28. And uh, by hook or by crook, I made it. Every anniversary, every one of my birthdays, and every one of her birthdays together. I even came out, uh, one year we even came out of the field because of a special military ball. It happened to be on our anniversary. I got out, went to work for the first company, this civilian company, and I missed all three of those key events for five years in a row, traveling to implement warehouse management systems. 
And when they got ready to tell me to do that again, uh, after 17 years, I said, nope, time to me to go fully retire. And I did. Uh, James, can you uh, share your uh, story about uh, the Purple Heart? Yeah, so, so sure. And um, so my service started at 17 and I also retired at 22 years. It's a combination of active and guard service. So um, I went into the army right after high school, loved it. Uh, got to see a lot of the country, participated in Operation Desert Storm, uh, came back from that, went to college, uh, stayed in the National Guard, actually went back on active duty, was a recruiter, and uh, did that for uh, six years uh, total. And uh, at that point, uh, I got a job, I got offered a job working for Tyson Foods, so I went to work for Tyson Foods and stayed in the garden. And I was a, um, uh, you know, I was in an infantry unit and it was a lot of fun. And it was one weekend a month, two weeks out of the year. And I worked for Tyson Foods making about 80 grand a year. And I was in Buffalo, New York actually, uh, when 9-11 uh, occurred. And then they sent me back to Union City, Tennessee where there was a big chicken processing plant for Tyson. And, and from there, they said, we're going to put you as the regional safety and security director for Tyson Foods. You're going to go up to New York. Two weeks, almost to the day after 9-11, you know, I went to check out and do a damage assessment of a, um, a warehouse facility near the 9-11 blast. And so going there and seeing, you know, all of the chaos that was going on. New York was very hard to travel around in. I don't know um, if you were around during that time or that you had a chance to see some of that. But um, yeah. it, it had a profound effect on me personally. And, um, you know, talking to some of the New Yorkers that were there that lost loved ones in this uh, event or they were missing at the time because uh, you know, most of them were firefighters uh, or first responders and they had spouses that were working. And what I noticed was is the resiliency of the New Yorker. Two weeks ago, their husband goes missing. Today, they're back into their office working. You know, and dealing with that, I didn't realize how much you would get into the whole the mental fallout from that. So it, I guess for me, it just, it was a, uh, it was an opportunity for me to be awakened from this, you know, living in a, in a lifestyle. I had been to war before, but, um, and experienced it with the 24th Infantry Division. I mean, you know, we kicked butt all up through the MSR there, uh, you know, going up and down <laughs> into Desert Storm, but, it was pretty fast. It was violent, but fast. And so, you know, I was wanting to go back on active duty. So I had a college degree, so I'll just go OCS. Well, when I started talking to the National Guard about leaving the National Guard, they're like, whoa, whoa, hold on a second. You don't have to do that. We will, we have a program called a direct commission program. 
and said, if you get this direct commission, you will go on active duty and you will probably be on active duty for a very long time. I said, okay, well, let me do that. And I went, I stood before a board and literally, you know, it, it was a, a 30 minute board. They asked questions, they looked at your records and I had a Colonel stand up and I stood up and I saluted him and he said, do you want us to promote you now? We got to wait on federal recognition, but because the state of Tennessee at the time, and believe it or not, I was living in New York, but still had my guard membership in Tennessee. They said the state of Tennessee will, you know, we can sign your commission right now. And so they made me a second lieutenant. They cut the stripes off of my uniform. So, and pin bars on me. And, and it was a, um, you know, it wasn't an event that had a lot of fanfare, but it was, was kind of shocking and kind of quick. And then two weeks after that, almost three weeks, uh, my Fed recognition had already came in and I'm like, wow, that's really quick. That usually takes like a month or two months to come in, you know. And then they said, well, you're going to go to the National Training Center with Mike Company, second of the 278th Armored Cab. And, and I went to NTC, took a tank platoon out there, never had been on a M1 Abrams. I was a scout cavalry scout and an infantryman in the army. That was what I did, you know what I mean? And um, I thought they would have put me in a scout platoon, but they didn't, they, they put me on an M1 Abrams. And that was pretty cool because I got a real quick crash course in the National Training Center about life and time on a M1 Abrams uh, tank. And what was really interesting is, is that how much how, how fewer the soldiers are in an armor platoon versus a scout platoon. You go from 40, you know, to 12, you know what I mean? And it's like, wow, this is just crazy. But that M1 is a powerful, powerful weapon system. And so after I came back from that, I started to put my paperwork in. I said, look, I want to hurry up and get to officer basic. I want to hurry up and get to, you know, do this. So they sent me to officer basic course. And, and when I went through officer basic course, they said, well, we're going to transition you to air defense artillery, short, short range air defense artillery. So that meant I had to go uh, at that time was Fort Knox to Fort Bliss. So they weren't lying about staying on active duty. I mean, literally training, training, training. So when I get to Fort Bliss, I go through that as about six months. Uh, great opportunity. I enjoyed it, learned a lot, you know, about the Army uh, air defense system. Again, I was never an air, air, air defender, you know. Um, I didn't know how to use a stinger. You know, I'd seen the guys. I didn't know anything about that. Uh, but the Army is really good with teaching you how to do that. So here I was, an armor officer, branch detailed to air defense artillery. And I said, there was one artillery air defense artillery unit. I was still working in Buffalo, okay? And there was one air defense artillery unit that was in Ohio that was a lot closer. So I did a, a transfer from Tennessee to Ohio because it's like, I wasn't gonna be, you know, I wasn't gonna be any doing anything other than unassigned air defense artillery. 
And when I got to Ohio, I, you know, my work has let me off this whole time. So I, let me just say this, Tyson Foods, I don't care what anybody says about Tyson Foods, they're absolutely one of the best companies you could have ever worked for. Um, they paid me for three months, you know, full pay. So I was drawing full pay from both companies. Then after that, they looked at what I was making in the army as a second lieutenant. And they said, we will pay you the difference. So you will always make $80,000 a year. And they wow. did that for over a year. So they gave me a computer. Uh, I didn't have to buy my computer for my officer basic course training. Uh, they gave me a cell phone. They said, use your cell phone. God bless you. Thank you for serving our country. Be safe. And when you get done, come back and you'll always have a job. And so I went through that. When I got to Ohio, I reported to Columbus. They said, how would you like to go on active duty? Uh, putting in cat card readers. And I said, okay, I'll do it. And so I went in there. Well, it put me in work, working for the G1 in Ohio. And so I made a great friend and his name was, uh, his name was Captain Pizza. I'll never forget it. He's, he's still a friend of mine, you know, on Facebook and uh, super guy. And I said, man, I said, I, I said, I want to deploy overseas. You know, I want to go overseas. I want to go to Iraq. Told him the story about being in New York, seeing the Twin Towers. He said, we're going to put your name on the list. And the first thing comes down the pike, we'll get you going. So again, this is going back to April 2002. By this time, it is, you know, July 2003. Whole time, you know doing training or knocks to NTC, to, to Bliss, to Columbus, Ohio. And the Army National Guard especially uh, was being used a lot, you know, during that time period. Well, we couldn't find a slot for me, you know, because they kept looking as an air defender slot, air defender slot. I said, just put in platoon leader. I just want to get I want to deploy overseas, you know what I mean? Um, and sure enough, sure enough. Uh, they came down with an assignment with the 1487th Transportation Company as a platoon leader. So I went and I met with their company commander and he says, he says, you're not a transportation officer. I said, yeah. You know, no shit. Yeah, I'm not. I'm a, I'm, I'm a transport. I'm not a transporter, but I can learn. He said, well, he said, I'll tell you what. He says, we're going to take you with this transportation unit because we think that your skills, your combat arm skills are going to be needed. So, boom, shebang, get assigned to the unit. Full active duty, whatever, AGR. It was AGR title. It was title 10. And... All I did that at that point was help the unit prepare to deploy, help the unit prepare to deploy and training, conducted training. So we were training them on weapon systems and how to react to an ambush and all of these things that truck drivers don't normally do. Because that summer you started to see the uptick of IEDs, attacks on convoys. It's like, ah, you know, this is gonna be a hazardous time. And so when we got over there, 
and we got in process to Camp Wolverine. They said, well, you're going to go up to Camp Navistar, which is right on the border, Kuwait, and Iraq. I said, okay. I said, uh, you know, when you get there, I said, okay, you're going to, because of your experience, we want you to take care of all convoy security. So my job at that point in time was to set up convoy security for the, the three platoons in a transportation company, plus run first platoon. So it was very, um, very difficult. And when we got into that March the 22nd, um, we, were, uh, we were doing the escort duty for our unit and we got attacked between Ramadi and Fallujah. And now the common practice was just to run through the ambush but they had us in a defile and Larry knows what that is, you know, where they're shooting down on you and they got these hillsides on both sides and you got IEDs blasting out. Well, they killed one of our civilian drivers and, and, and chopped up a few others pretty good, you know, with uh, small arms fire and IED shrapnel. So we had several trucks that were burning in this, this area and there was a bridge that had no entry or exit ramps. So I told my driver, I said, look, I said, I want you to go up the side of that embankment and get us up on that bridge. Because the enemy was up on the bridge shooting down. And so we get in there and uh, hold on one second here. Let's, uh... So we, we get there. Hold on a second, I don't know what happened here. Anyways, we get there, and as soon as we come up on top of the berm, we come up over like this. I had a saw gunner up on the top. He just starts going, Burr, and then brass is just falling down. So we get out, and we, um, I'm going to have to turn this off, folks. Sorry about that. Oh, it's all right. So we, we, get, we get out, and we start shooting at these guys, and they have a white truck parked on the other end of the bridge. And they're shooting at us. We're shooting at them. And they're starting to go and get in the truck. They go and they get in the truck and they start to drive off. And we just, just pummel that truck. And it rolled and rolled and rolled over the side of the embankment. And it, literally, it crashed, you know, at the bottom of this, this hill. And I turned around to talk on the radio to call in, you know, and to do a, get a sit rep on what everybody was doing. And we started to see another truck that was out in this field. It was like a white, I don't know, everybody had a white Toyota was there, man. I'm just telling. And, and this truck um, looked, appeared to have like either a mortar or something in the back of it. And they were shooting rounds and starting to lob rounds and getting pretty close to our trucks in that, in that area. It's like a four lane highway. I don't know if you're familiar with the area. And so I have to stop, get off the radio. And we just directed our fire at the truck. And what was interesting was, is that within the first volley, I've never seen this before in my life and probably will, hopefully will never see it again. We must have hit one of the shells and that whole truck exploded. I'm not kidding you. It was like, and I can remember everybody just stopping and looking at each other and saying, what the hell was that? You know? <laughs> and it just exploded. And 
somebody was still over on the other side because then I go back to talk on the radio and then I hear the zing zing, you know, the whizzing of bullets. I didn't hear no shooting or any of that other stuff. I just know that glass started shattering and then uh, I could feel stuff hitting me. I didn't know what it was, but it was like, you know, pieces of glass and it was pieces of the pavement. And one of the rounds actually hit me in the, uh, in the calf. And so it was, um, it was a thud. Uh, and let me tell you what it's like. It's like hitting a freaking trailer hitch, man, with your shin, okay? And it, it just hurt really, really bad. Uh, but in the beginning, it didn't hurt as bad as you thought it would. Um, but that pain just slowly started to grow. And I was like, oh, man, I said, I have been hit you know, and uh, the battle that pretty much died down and, and a guy you're probably familiar with, the guy named uh, John Kelly, General John Kelly from the Marine Corps, actually rode out with his uh, QRF from the Marines that were over in Camp Fallujah to see what the hell was going on. And that was his terms. Now, I didn't know he was a general, had no idea he was a general, but we're up on the bridge and, uh, you know, and, and I'm taking out a bandage to try to wrap it around my leg. And this captain is with him. He's an army captain. There's an army captain and a bunch of Marines. I'm like, this is just really odd here. And uh, he walks up, he says, okay. I said, uh, uh, he said, what happened? I was explaining to him what happened. And he kept calling this other guy, sir. So I said, well, he's at least a Lieutenant Colonel because he had no rank on none whatsoever. And uh, he's got this pistol and he's waving around and he walks over and he says, okay. And, uh, and I said, and I re reached down to the cabin. I said, what, what do I just, sir, or what? He's the general, that's General Kelly. That's General Kelly. So he whispered it to me. And so of course I said, sir, and I explained to him what happened. And, uh, and we had a decent conversation. Well, during that conversation, he said, and I'll never forget, he says, well, we got to be careful out here. He says, we don't want to just kill everybody. He says, we don't, we don't want to kill anybody that doesn't need to be killed out here. And he says, and it looks like, you know, you guys have got a truck here and a truck there. And I said, you know, I said, to be truthful, sir, I said, every one of these some bitches out here needed to be killed. <laughs> and I'll never forget, he took his hand and put it on my helmet like a kid. You know how you do a kid's head? He says, ah, you should have been a Marine, son. <laughs> and uh, ironically, flash forward like two years ago, you know, his, his son was killed in Afghanistan, as you know. His wife comes to an event, and a Gold Star family event. And I told her that story, and she said, I remember hearing that story. I remember hearing that story. And it was, you know, maybe, she, I don't know if she told me because she felt, made me feel good. But, uh, but that really happened. And then I went to Al-Assad, got treated. Um, I was out for uh, 48 hours. I was RTD, returned to duty. And then rode with the convoy back to Navistar, was off the road until April the 5th, April the 5th. Uh, you know, I rode out with another convoy to do convoy security 
And on April the 7th, as we were riding into Biop, I was on the 50 caliber machine gun. And we got attacked. It probably was one of the worst ambushes I'd ever been in in my life. And you know, there's a lot of writings about that. If you go look up Rich Kilblaine, I just would rather not relive every second of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but ultimately what happened was, is that up on that 50 cal, uh, you know, I'm firing, poop, 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 poop. And I look and I see we're in an L-shaped ambush and it was a really good one. Now, the only way you can break an L-shaped ambush is you have to get into the apex. So they had guys up on a bridge and they had guys along the roadway and they were about 75 yards. And I know that because I got on Google Earth after this occurred and I replayed this battle in my head many times. So I can tell you exactly where our vehicle was at. I measured the distance on Google Earth, 75, I'm sorry, 75 meters, my, my bad. And on the side of the road, they were about 50 meters off the side of the road. There was a little irrigation ditch, and then there was a road on the other side. They had cars parked up there, and they were using the cars to make escape runs on the convoy. We had a 44-truck convoy, and um, I had uh, three guys that got shot down real quick. Uh, thank God none of them were killed. Uh, actually, one of the bullets actually ricocheted off the guy's head right above his ear. I'll never forget that. So, um, but, you know, it was very chaotic and very violent. Um, as Larry will tell you, nobody goes into this wanting to kill anybody. We want to serve our country. Um, we want to defend, we want to stop the things like 9-11 from ever happening again. So as you're thinking about all that, um, you know, and we're shooting and fighting it out with an enemy, my guys are out of the vehicle. My A driver on the right gets shot in the thigh. And I knew that he got shot because I heard it. And then my driver was hit by shrapnel in the face. And he had just, you know, your, your face has so many you know, capillaries and, and, and little veins in it, man, and you just bleed horribly. So it looked like, you know, he'd been eating a, a bloody piece of meat, you know. And, and these guys are still fighting. And I had another guy behind me had a bullet ricocheted and uh, hit his hand. And, and it cut a groove in the top of his hand uh, pretty good. Well, as I'm firing, I'm looking over to the left, focusing on that apex. And I look over to the right and I don't, I don't hear the shot. I, I don't see anything, but a bullet had came through the 50 cal mount and hit my hand. And when it went through it, you know, it, uh, it shattered. So I've got scars all up and down my arm from this. And then it blew out the bottom of my hand. And, and it wasn't the whole bullet. It was just pieces of it. These bullets just went everywhere but there was a perfectly round hole in that mount. And I don't know if it's a little bit of shock or what, but I was kept trying to hit the thumb. My his hand didn't work, but I'm hitting the thumb and my weapon's not working. And I look, there's a hole. And then I look and I'm like, I'm out of ammo. Well, I wasn't out of ammo. The bullet had actually broke the link on the 50 cal. So I opened up the tray, got my mind's about, mind about me, 
reached over with my right arm and pulled what was left of the, the bullets out. When I dropped that tray, I seen the guy looking right at me and I knew I was, I was had, you know, and I didn't hear a shot. I didn't hear nothing. Uh, the only thing I, I remember is, is looking up at the 50 cow sticking straight up in the air and I'm in the bottom of the Humvee. <clears throat> and it knocked the breath down on me. And, and I was thinking to myself as I'm laying there, I'm wore out, man, you know? I'm bleeding, I'm looking around, I see this white dust. But during this time I'm sitting down and I'm thinking to myself, if this is dying, I'm okay with this. I'm, I'm okay with this. Is this what dying is like? I figured I was dying, you know? You could hear the roar and the bullets hitting the vehicle. You could hear the enemy saying, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar, you know, very loud. You could hear people yelling in Arabic, our guys cussing and everybody yelling. And then I could hear my driver. Um, he came around to the back of the vehicle and opened up the hatch where I was at in the Humvee. And he says, LT, you've been shot. And I realized at that point in time, I was okay because the bullet had hit me right there in the sappy plate, in the vest. Now that plate is in the West Virginia State Archives Museum uh, in our veterans ex exhibit. And uh, I remember telling him something. I said, no, I said, I'm gonna get up here and we're gonna, I'm gonna shoot everyone. And I probably said some, you know, some foul things you know, in that process, I don't know, but, but I tell people that was probably the point where I really had my come to Jesus experience. Now, a lot of people don't want to hear that part of this, but here's the reality. You know, for me, it was a, it was a test of my faith and, and it tested it to the ultimate. And I realized that dying was not the worst thing that could happen to you in this world. The worst thing that could happen to you is for you to quit, to give up, and to let other people die because you quit and you give up. And when I come back up, that same guy, I looked, I was immediately zoning in on that guy because I wanted to kill that guy. I mean, I'm just telling you right now, there was no, you know, it was like David with the sling, man, I'm going to put this rock right between your eyes, you know. <laughs> so when I come up, he is leaning over the bridge because he's looking for my driver, you know? And I squeezed that thing as hard as I could, you know, the, the butterfly thing on there. And, and that's when you realize my hand don't work. My bones are broken, my hand, man. Um, but my thumb still could work. And, and it was, uh, Everything exploded in front of me. Here's what I will tell you. The only thing I can tell you is, is that he never shot anybody again. And that rifle hit the ground and it made a weird bounce when it hit. Um, and I ran out of ammo because I shot the rest of the belt, you know, 30, 40 rounds, however many is in there. I'm reloading. And then something goes over the Humvee and explodes. And I realized these guys are throwing grenades, trying to get grenades down in the dang hatch, you know? And uh, so as I was putting the ammo tray up, my rifle had fell down in the floor of the Humvee 
And the only thing I could grab was a red pop flare. And there was a red pop flare and I took that red pop flare and I shot it in the direction of where those guys were at. And there were two guys. And that scared them obviously because they thought somebody shooting a rocket at them. And, uh, and I grabbed my rifle and was able to fire. I mean, everybody's shooting. It's just, there's just right. chaos. And, uh, and that flare with that bloody handprint is in Fort Eustis, Virginia uh, Museum. And uh, I had thrown that thing away uh, whenever I had got finished cleaning everything out. It was laying there and I could see a distinct bloody handprint on it. And I remember my driver, he grabbed, he says, nah, LT he says, let's put this in a bag. He said, this really shows, and I'll never forget him saying that. He says, it really shows the seriousness of that day. And, uh, and he had the foresight uh, to save it and mailed it to the army historian at Fort Eustis um, who ended up putting it in a museum. So that was, uh, we were taken to the, uh, special forces uh, compound which there was a compound right as you go in uh, after this battle was over and we were treated by the fifth special forces group now i'm not sf i'm not airborne not any of those things you know i was a leg and a grunt and a, mecha a mechanized guy but let me just say this about the special forces community and the airborne community in particular. They're some of the finest people that you'll ever serve with. Just like those Marines with General Kelly, fine, yeah. wonderful patriots of this country. And, and I think that we as, as soldiers and as veterans should be able to acknowledge each other for that greatness. The special forces community and that medics that were in there removed the bullet fragments from my hand, treated my driver, treated me, treated all of us and triaged us so good that from there we went to the Air Force cache on BIOP. And when we got there, you know, they were able to essentially put us back together. And they said, wow, who did this? Who did this? And we explained to them, it was these, this, this group of guys from the Fifth Special Forces group. And, and I have forever been indebted to that community because of that, because you know, in addition to that, they came and pulled our butts out of that mess as well uh, at the end of that uh, event. So, um, so I've been always very, very, you know, specifically always told about the wonderful things that they, they do and did. And um, we were there and they, it was all hell was breaking loose all over Iraq. So they sent us over to um, a staging area. And at that staging area, we got back with our vehicle. The SF guys had maintenance guys. They fixed our Humvee. I mean, we had bullet holes in the radiator. We had all the stuff you can imagine. They fixed the glass. They put ballistic glass. They gave us plates. We didn't ask them to do that. But that's just the greatness of that community that they didn't care that I was in a transportation unit. They didn't care that I wasn't airborne, wasn't SF. They just saw another soldier in need. And so there's our vehicle, you know, already. And we're, it's Thursday. The next day is Good Friday of 2004. 
and and really that's when all hell really does break loose. Convoys are attacked, we're mortared, we're shelled, we can't get out of the area. Trucks are pulling in. And on Easter Sunday, we were parked by the West Wall and it was attacked. And sure enough, me and 10 other guys uh, drove our vehicle up on a position and we defended that compound against about 50 Mahdi militants. Um, and all that while they were wounded. So the, 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 the tenacity and the, the superb spirit of the American service member is seen in those who can play with pain and they don't just surrender or give up. You know, they keep going. Now I got one again on the 4th of July, you know, and it just seems like Easter and the 4th of July for me are just like, wow, you know, they bring back some serious memories. But the 4th of July, we got hit by a, a double stack IED and, and, you know, and I ended up getting shrapnel fragments in my face and in my arm and ended up getting a, a pretty significant traumatic brain injury, but didn't really know it, you know. Uh, again, all three times, RTD. Return to duty, return to duty, return to duty. Um, but, you know, you have control of that to a certain sense, you know. I mean, if you're so bad, they're not going to return you to duty. But if they think that you can take care of yourself and you're in an area where you can get treatment, if something goes south, they will return you to duty. So, um, anyways, that was my experience of being wounded um, more than once. The second time was probably the worst. First time was pretty memorable for General Kelly. And the third time, who could ever forget the 4th of July, man? Right. <laughs> Being part of this organization, and, and as Larry was telling you, I, I'm with him 100% on that. You know, you look around and there's, like, we don't always all get along. You know, I mean, we have our, our ups and downs. Ups and downs. Yeah. But let me tell you something. If that guy right there called me and said, James, I really need you. I would go. And that's, that's just because that's what, and he would do the same for me. And even though, you know, I mean, you get into these, these large organizations, you got 50,000 members. Yeah. You're going to have your, you know, your, your arguments or whatever, but for the most part, the camaraderie and being part of an organization that goes back and, 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 and as part of the earliest medal ever created for the United States Armed Forces, which is the Purple Heart, mm -hmm. is a pretty cool thing. And, uh, and we get to do good things in the communities. And I'll tell you where it really plays out. It doesn't play out as much at the national headquarters. So me being the national commander, Larry being the national adjutant, you know, we see the big picture, you know, we're at this big strategic level. Um, but Larry can tell you the operational level are those chapters, those individual chapters that are in each state. And they are going out and doing things that you don't even hear about, raising money for kids that have cancer, going out, somebody's spouse dies or somebody, you know, is sick, they help them. You know, it's not just about raising money. It's about showing up to put a roof on a house or, you know, to build a set of steps or turn it into a, uh, you know, uh, a ramp so that they can get in and out, helping them get a job. We work with other organizations that give away cars and homes 
and they send us information and we distribute it out to our members. We don't just, you know, pigeonhole it into one little group. We pop it out to everybody um, because we think that there's value in collaboration and we believe that there's definitely value in working together for the greater good. Um, the Purple Heart, we've had our setbacks financially, we have. Um, we run up against a brick wall sometimes with other organizations that, uh, you know, everybody feels they're in a competition for money all the time. We sometimes run into the political aspect of it, you know, because we will not endorse you as a candidate because we can't, you know. We don't like to sit up and take too many pictures with uh, politicians, but we will if they're doing something good and righteous. Um, and sometimes that gives us, you know, this little bit of pushback. But the one thing that nobody can take away from us is everybody in this organization that is a member has faced the enemy in, in combat and has been wounded by an instrumentality of warfare and has survived to be part of this organization. And I think that they have a story to tell. And I believe that the Military Order of the Purple Artists is the greatest veterans organization that is out there. And if given the chance and given the ability to, uh, you know, to raise funds and do the things that we need to do, you could see us doing sending a lot more kids to college uh, on our scholarships. You could see us doing a lot more monuments and memorials and services. And you could definitely see us out on a speaker's bureau. I think that every Rotary Club, Lions Club in America, they should be calling Larry at the headquarters saying, hey, do you got anybody in Tuscaloosa, Alabama that can come and speak at our Rotary Club? Because we want to hear about the combat wounded veterans of America. And they can come and tell you their story. And, and we need more of that. And I think that's what makes the military order of the Purple Heart so unique, so special. And so wonderful. And we're just getting started, buddy. I'm telling you, we are just getting started. So no, we've been around since 32. We're starting to see improvements. Our members are seeing benefits of, of being a member of this. We're moving with a partnership with the National Flag Foundation. We were there, man, with Rocky Blyer, a Purple Heart recipient, announcing the 240th draft pick of the NFL. You know, we are willing to collaborate and work with other organizations that will do righteous and good things. Um, and, and we're starting to identify those and do that right now.